We are exporting our drug war and forcing other countries to engage in what are ultimately human rights abuses. Ministry of Extraction sheds light on the various interactions connected to the extraction phase of the seed to consumption journey. What we do here at Ministry of Extraction is hold conversations with scientists, inventors, engineers, marketers, chemists, farmers, legal teams, and visionaries to understand various approaches and interactions with cannabis plants and most importantly, human factor throughout the extraction experience. So, Betty, first of all, thank you so much for for coming out here. It was a really great connection that that we made with Matt earlier at ArcView. Um, And I feel like, well, I was previewed to a little bit about your organization. Mm -hmm. So I was scrolling through Instagram. Mm -hmm. And in that first scroll, I mean, the first four, you know, um, rows that you guys have is just super exciting. And I was like, man, I have to meet, you know, someone from this team behind that. And sure, again, Matt... Boom, brings me to the <laughs> the Patron, you know, the patron, uh, Patrona of, of this um, uh, beautiful organization. So first of all, uh, do you mind giving us a little bit of overview of, you know, um, the, the I guess your leadership team and, and you know, your, your mission-driven um, organization that you have? Sure. So Students for Sensible Drug Policy is a network of yeah, you know, about 6,000 young people operating, mobilizing, really, from campuses all over the world. We have a presence on 300 campuses in 34 countries on every inhabited continent. And we're all coming together around a singular idea, which is that the war on drugs is a war on us and ought to be ended and replaced with policies rooted in safety, justice, and education. So that looks very different between Berkeley, California, and Manila in the Philippines, right? Those are two entirely different fights. But no matter where our students are, what we can provide them with is a connection to the global drug policy reform movement, connection to all of the resources that are developing in the global cannabis industry, um, education about how to go about changing policies in their countries and educating their peers, and really providing young people a platform from which they are able to shape the world into what they'd like to see. I've been lucky enough to support this organization for five years now. Um, and we have a staff of 14 operating from one, two, three, four, five different countries um, in order to provide the support that our students need in order to get this work done. Amazing, man. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that that uh, whole paragraph there is is just filled with uh, extreme bright light. Absolutely. Right? It, but, but it takes a lot of uh, um, the right humans to be mm-hmm. behind this. Right. Mm-hmm. So what has like shaped um, if you can take us back, I mean, don't take us back all the way to your mother's room or anything like that. If you'd like, if you can remember that, that'd be awesome. Um, but yeah, take, give us a little bit of history of, of yourself. Like how did, yeah. you know, kind of bring us to, to date? Uh, not quite the womb, but I actually, I've been, uh, an activist since as long as I can remember. My, my dad took me to protests when I was a kid. We would, um, here in Nevada on Easter every year, go out to the Nevada test site for an anti-nukes protest. 
um, hunt for Easter eggs and then go protest nukes, right? Um, When I was 13, I organized my first action, which was a total flop, but I organized my first action at 13. Um, It was just me and my mom (laughs) who showed up. What was it for? uh, Cleaning up Lake Mead. So it was an Earth Day event and i tried to get all of you know my my middle school to come clean up lake mead with us you know it's fine you've got to have those those tough hits at the beginning of your activism career i think um and i wrote letters uh against apartheid you know so like in 93 94 95 when apartheid falls and nuclear the nuclear treaties were signed I was deeply engaged for a for, uh, you know a 13 14 15 year old in these change movements and felt like I was part of something that that mattered and that got me hooked after you've been involved in a handful of movements even if it's just writing letters even if it's just going to the protests Yeah that's powerful. Yeah and if you're if you're a teenager and all of a sudden you believe that you can change the world you can be a part of a team of people changing the world how do you stop doing that? You know, and so I've uh, my full career uh, has been oriented around nonprofit work, education, um, you know, and, and I uh, made a brief foray into medical marijuana, which is where I got hooked on this particular issue area. So, uh, yeah, I spent 10 years as a nonprofit volunteer leader before uh, about a decade ago ending up here. So going back to when you're you were a a kid mm-hmm. and, and, you know, developing your first action, uh, with, with your mom, I mean, what, like, were your parents activists as well? Were they extremely involved with the community? Um, and that's what really drew you or did they kind of like have to drag you to these events and, uh, you know, like what was that experience like? So my dad is a, um, He's an old hippie, right? He's he was protesting before he and mom met, you know, protesting against Vietnam and the rest. Um, and so it was sort of in the DNA when we were young um, and sure. just part of part of our day to day world. I had an early political awareness. You know, we paid a lot of attention to what was happening in the world. We tried to figure out how we could engage it. And, you know, dad did a lot of work around making sure that we were aware and aware of the idea that it takes citizen action to change anything. Mom, on the other hand, um, is uh, less involved in that sort of thing. Um, however, she is one of the fiercest women you'll ever met or ever meet and um, incredibly supportive. So she, you know, um, was always happy to to make sure that we were engaged in work that we found meaningful and and continues to be. She's a donor to my organization. She's always given to every organization that I've worked for. She's uh, tremendously supportive of me and my work. And her example, the ways that she's shown me how to operate in the world have really been instrumental to me developing my leadership style. So it started a little bit with uh, awareness, yeah. right? Like just being open. Absolutely. To- Hey, this is happening. Right. What are your thoughts about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of those sorts of conversations around the dinner table from a very young age. We were talking about this before. Remember, I I, I just had a, a child, a baby girl, two months. Congratulations! Thank you so much. And we were talking with Matt about like, you know, how how can like I I don't want to impose right and give right. all these like ideas and thoughts to someone else, especially a baby. Um, you know, growing up. I, I want her to kind of like figure things out and have her own thoughts and minds around topics and things, but definitely expose them, 
expose her to it. Right. So we were, you know, we were kind of talking about like how, um, that first step is awareness, right? Like, okay, here, this is the, I guess the dark side of the world. Here's the light side of the world. What do you think? What are your thoughts about this? Like, I don't know, racism, for example, you know, or, um, how immigrants are treated, um, anywhere in the world. Cause it's not just, you know, here, it doesn't matter where you are. There's always someone from the outside coming in right? and vice versa. Um, so I, I guess a, awareness is that first step. So in, in, um, in your process, maybe the past 10, 15 years, how have you been able to fine tune that awareness and continue to have, um, a daily pulse to the ground and to the people where it really matters? I'll say this. Um, my, in, in my upbringing, we were firmly rooted in a set of values that all humans deserve dignity, that we are um, deeply connected to people all over the world, that our actions have impact, and that we need to be aware of them. Right. So, yes, awareness, but also a, a strong sense of values around, you know, what I have come to understand as human rights. And so when we were having those conversations, the idea that anyone ought to be treated with anything less than full dignity was never an acceptable notion. And so as over the course of the last 10 or 15 years yeah. or 20 years, I suppose, um, what I've come to understand is that there are some root causes of many of the indignities in the world that are imposed upon people everywhere. People who use drugs, people who are impoverished, people of color, people who are um, oppressed in their communities and countries through the drug war or other, you know, mechanisms that are used to oppress. Um, And my understanding of how those mechanisms work has really deepened in terms of a systemic understanding of that. Right. And this is what, this is what's interesting to me about the war on drugs. Right. I am concerned about human rights. I'm concerned about food justice. I'm concerned about racial justice. I'm concerned about social justice. These are some of the core things that I see as deeply problematic in the ways that we treat people. And the war on drugs in particular is one of the ways that we, uh, one of the most effective tools in the toolbox for oppressing communities, whether that's communities in the U.S. that are, you know, in particular for people of color, um, in particular for people who are impoverished, in particular for young people, but also communities around the world where we are exporting our drug war and forcing other countries to engage in what are ultimately human rights abuses, and also here, human rights abuses, um, that are um, continuing to manifest this oppression over and over and over again in these destructive cycles. So I have gone from from being a person who engages in direct service, uh, which is the nomenclature that we use in my field of, you know, actually providing a service to someone in need in the moment that they need it, to working on the policy, because I think that, you know, both of these pieces are needed. I am most effective at looking at a big systemic problem and trying to figure out how to unravel it. In in this journey, right, in that whole process, um, how have you been able to weave in this growing uh, cannabis industry? So the cannabis industry, uh, 
Prior to working at Students for Sensible Drug Policy, I worked for the National Cannabis Industry Association for one year. And um, I did so because I believe that the cannabis industry is a vector for reform, right? Uh, One of the things that we learned in Colorado when we were working to pass the initiative there is that when people become acclimated to cannabis uh, companies, retail spaces in particular, but can but can, retail, but cannabis industry in their economic ecosystem, in their in or near their neighborhoods where they're shopping, um, then they start to uh, become less sensitive and fearful about cannabis and the people who use it. So if we are able to demonstrate to the world, for example, that medical marijuana stores in your neighborhood don't make your neighborhood less safe, don't make your children less safe, in fact, improve the health and safety of your community, well, then it's an easier jump to say, yes, we should make marijuana legal for those people who are fearful and believe the drug war lies. So when we're able to expand the cannabis industry in that regard, we are able to change people's minds more quickly. And now we have, you know, many, most Americans have visited places where cannabis is legal. They've seen that it's okay. They've seen that the sky isn't falling. And sure, maybe they smell some pot on the street every once in a while. And, and, you know, they might not feel great about it. But then they look at the tax revenue and they can do the math. You know, they look at the job creation, they can figure it out. And I do believe that the cannabis industry has been incredibly critical to moving that question forward. Now, the question today is less about how does the cannabis industry participate as a vector of reform in an awareness-raising sense and much more about how does the cannabis industry reckon with making millions and millions and millions of dollars for the sale of a product for which other people are incarcerated, are literally locked in cages just maybe one state over from where the money is being made, sometimes even still in the same states because we haven't perfected expungement systems yet. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause it's, it's so fragmented. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you guys meet? How did you uh, meet Matt? Yeah. It might've been Arcview DC. It's been a while. Yeah. It's been quite some time. Yeah. I've been respecting your organization for a long time. Such a champion. I love it. Yeah. I love no, it. it's uh, well ending the war on drugs, right? Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about are things that aren't new problems, right? All the way from the opium wars overseas in, mm-hmm. in our history books. Mm-hmm. Um, and this method of oppression, uh, where it's kind of a double standard, mm-hmm. um, you know, and this, this plant grows in the ground. Um, it's not compounded. Um, it doesn't take a myriad of clinical trials uh, on living right. creatures. Has a 6,000 year safety profile. Right, 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 exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And it makes a nice incense outdoors. You said you might smell it sometimes. Some people enjoy it, right? right. Yeah, right. The, the plant has a lot to offer. Yeah. Um, no, but I, uh, I really started following Betty personally um, when I met, now I remember, MJ BizCon. Uh, it was the podcast, Marijuana Business Daily. They had a breakfast live recording. And um, I got to sit with Betty and a number of the NCIA founders um, in my first marijuana business conference and kind of wax pontific, right, around what could be done and what should be done. At the time, I was private equity, 100% in the space. Um, So I was looking at it from a capital point of view. Uh, And it was really just uh, impressive and continued to be enjoyable to see conscious capitalism uh, applied to change. Um, And yeah, that, that, that was how we met. One of the things that um, is always exciting to me, so 
there are many different ways that one can do work around the war on drugs or human rights or whatever it might be. And I choose to work with SSDP because I recognize that every social change movement requires a vibrant, supported, um, respected, and smart youth contingent in order to get things done. So we have a student and youth movement, you know, that we are using to support this much broader piece, you know, piece of work that we're all doing together. And um, I am particularly, you know, just as a human being, uh, drawn to young people um, who are uh, dynamic in their world and who are making a lot of change. I think, you know, I'm, I'm ready for for young people to be in charge. <laughs> you know, and I recognize that that as, as you know, in particular for millennials, I, the the ways that that millennials are aware of the world and aware of these systemic injustices and where you are much more systemic thinkers, I think, than Gen Xers. And I love that about young people. So when I uh, encounter a young entrepreneur who gets it really quickly and who also clearly has a, a strong sense of vision and, and passion for the work, um, I'm always excited to learn more about what's driving them. So it was, it's been a great uh, uh, couple of years to g- yeah. get to know Matt. For sure. And then one of the, the factoids that hit me the hardest uh, was privatized prison rates. I think over 85% nonviolent drug offenders. Since the 1980s, our federal prison population has gone up 800%. Overall, in our country, a 500% increase uh, in incarceration. And then from an entrepreneur standpoint, owning my own businesses and having to pay for my own businesses, well, it actually costs more to have an inmate uh, that got caught just selling cannabis without a gun per night than staying in a Hilton. Uh, It's about $185 ahead of taxpayer dollars for something that we're commercializing and making the biggest industry in the world. It costs more to incarcerate someone in California than to send them to Harvard. Why are we not providing people with the education that they need in order to avoid the criminal justice system? Well, I mean, this, this is part of the war, right? I mean, it's a tactic. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a war tactic. Forty years ago today, this country started a war. The enemy, illegal drugs. And a lot of this has been driven by a war on drugs. When many of the people who are incarcerated are nonviolent drug offenders, much of which is linked to marijuana arrests. There's so much to kind of cover. You know, it's kind of like, where do you really start? Because the tactics are uh, so, uh, they're, they're dressed right. up with, you know, um, these institutions privately and governmentally owned and managed, um, and, and people back it, the masses back them, mm-hmm. you know, these things, but they don't know. Less so now than before, right? Um, the drug war, uh, when, when polling is done and you ask folks, do you support the war on drugs? Over 90% of Americans say no. However, most people don't understand what that really means. Most people don't understand that when they're you know, calling the cops on their neighbors for using cannabis or when they are you know, um, you know, electing district attorneys who are incredibly prosecutorial, when they are electing sheriffs who are going after people who are using drugs, that that is part of enforcing the war on drugs. So it's an enormous education opportunity. And one of the things, yes, it is, where do you start? That's always such a tough question. Where do you start? Because there's so much to this problem. You know, the the war on drugs has woven its tentacles into every 
policy area, environmental policy, educational policy, economic policies. You know, when so many people are incarcerated and not out there being productive citizens of society, that matters to the whole country. If we're talking about drugs, right? Like the actual right. drug that is consumed by a human is everywhere. And the money and the yeah. funds power a lot of organizations. Absolutely. Well, so that's the tough part, right? So as we start to unpack this, how, how do we how do we get to a tomorrow, right? Um, and and it's, it's a the way you start is the way SSDP started. Um, because once you have students around the world that refuse to accept, accept other than how they're, they know to believe, I mean, Pablo and I went to school together and we had our mindset on something we knew was right and just. Uh, maybe the teacher didn't agree, but um, you know it, it, it probably still happened. And I, so I think that that is that change agent when you might see the reflecting pool in DC eventually completely flooded. And I'm going to take this opportunity to to kind of share this story because I've always wanted to say it to multiple people and in public. And like at Rollins College, I had a professor, Polly Sai, won't name the name. We've had him together. Um, my grandfather was deep in uh, Peruvian government. And so the drug on wars, he was part of this in Peru. He actually worked with the CIA. He was cha- he was trained um, in Virginia. He was trained also, well, him and his team um, in Israel uh, to combat terrorism, which is also tied to the war on drugs. Um, so, you know, I, I from a really, really young age, I used to, um, we would go to Peru in the summers and with him, and, you know, 15 of the Delta Force team in Peru, Peruvian team, he would go to the jungles through the Amazon, stop in these different tribes, and he would go and send his cadets deeper, make sure that everything was cool in terms of drug trade. So I, I was there in from a completely different perspective in, in microscope. Um, going back to the class at Rollins, turned into paper. I, so I had a lot of intel in terms of like real information of government during um, you know, through my grandfather and, and his friends um, when Fujimori was president in Peru. A lot of uh, terrorism internally in Peru. And, you know, I turned in this this document with like real stuff, right? Not the way that um, U.S. schooling tells the story, right. but real information, right? And, you know, the grammar and, and everything else was was okay, but I still got to be, but I still got to be on this paper, right? And like, there's no way anyone else in this in this class did more research and had more factual information in this document. And and still on the back, he, you know, he left me this note on Aliyoto Post-it. And it was like, you know, it, it was very much like, you know, this is not the way it happened, pretty much, message thing. And I'm like, you know, what the hell is going on here, right? Like, you know, the, so going kind of looping this all, all the way around to like what to the present. Um, yes, the the situation is, is really deep and it's not, I mean, there's a lot of change happening. Um, I think it's amazing that you're rounding up this group age that you have behind you because eventually they're going to be in power somewhere, hopefully, yes. right? You're like the, the farming these minds, yeah. their values that were instilled in you when you were a child. You're kind of uh, enable, enabling to shape that um, in a really positive way, right? So yes, it does take time. It takes years mm-hmm. to put the 6,000 kids behind you into places, on tables, in front of mics, in front of the camera, 
to speak and share their mind to hopefully form policies and ideas and organizations, right? Well, and, you know, the exciting thing is that we're actually starting to see the results of that. We've been, yeah, we've been operating for 20 years. We have 40,000 alumni members. We have people elected to sheriff's offices. We have people who are working in public health departments. We have people who are being elected to public office now. We have people in our group who are becoming decision makers and influencers in policy spaces, in law enforcement spaces, in public health spaces, and in the cannabis industry. Troy Dayton, Chris Crane, Chris Lotlicker, these are Amanda Ryman, one of the uh, foremost researchers in cannabis. These people are all SSDP alumni and are influencing very heavily the ways that we're going about thinking about these questions now. And there is no question that in the very near future, we are going to see many more SSDPers elected to public office in particular. Um, but my favorite, I think, might be the sheriff. Uh, he's a there's a young man who works in a sheriff's office in I believe uh, North Dakota who is a an SSDPer. And uh, very passionate about creating safer communities and bringing those SSTP values to the ways that he's doing his work. So, Pablo, That's you might really not cool. be aware of the, the, the impact that has. So um, privatized prisons was that previous issue we talked about uh, for, for incarceration and nonviolent drug offenders. And the single largest payer into that space is the sheriff's union, which is the second largest union in the country, second only to longshoremen. So when we talk about how or tactics and strategies, how um, having someone infiltrate, you know, quote unquote, um, is a great point or a perspective for a message to be heard from. Um, you're still going to have to find a lot of supportive dollars to be able to help keep the unions, um, you know, funded as they are. But that's that's great, Betty. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. And so, you know, uh, we have 40,000 alumni. I can tell you what, you know, several hundred of them yeah. do. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we know that and we know that they're influencers. But the the interesting thing is there are, you know, if, if there are several hundred who we can talk about, that means there are 39,500 who are out there living life. You know, maybe they're accountants, maybe they're, you know, doing some, maybe they're nurses, maybe they're doing something entirely um, hypothetically outside of the realm of drug policy, but they're there with SSDP values and they're having conversations. So as we are starting to move policy questions forward, such as cannabis policy reform, and they're having conversations with their neighbors uh, about this and the, the, you know, soccer moms or whoever that they're interacting with, they are bringing those SSDP values to those conversations because they're still highly likely to support the same kinds of reforms that they were fighting for in college. And it's really exciting to see that happening. And I, there's one um, extremely prominent SSDP alumni member who I didn't know he was an SSDP alum. He is a thought leader um, in uh, the media space. He's got an enormous following, and he talks very frequently about the injustices of the war on drugs. I learned recently that he's an alumni member, but I know for sure that he has touched millions of people with this message because he believes it. And he is the the most prominent example, but that's happening in, you know, uh, on, uh, in neighborhoods all over America all yeah. the time because we've been, yeah. we've been pushing this message for 20 years and now it's yeah. really starting to sink in. Well, it, it starts at the kitchen tables, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where every every single social change movement starts is in one on one or small group conversations. And there's only one way to do it. Talking to people.
we teach people how to do it. You have that that burning fire in you. Like it just burns and burns. So I it, it can only burn with fuel. So where do you go? What is your source of fuel? We do really serious work. We do work that matters, that saves lives. Um, and that if, you know, if, if we weren't doing this work, um, the world would be a much worse place, in my belief. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm driven by a sense of justice, a sense of human rights, a need to change things, a need to leave this world a little bit better than I found it. And I know that that's an incredibly long path. So um, I've learned to celebrate the small victories. I've learned to see those little things, those little moments as all part of a path to something greater. That's a big part of it, right? Like, I mean, we're the war on drugs might outlast me. I hope not. We're working, we're doing everything we can to not let that happen. But I recognize that that's a possibility. So every life we save is a victory. There's that. I also am inspired by um, a, a quote by, or a paraphrase of uh, the Russian anarchist from the uh, early uh, 20th century, Emma Goldman. And the, uh, the essence of it is, it's not my revolution if it doesn't have dancing. So <laughs> we try to make sure that we can have... A lot of fun, right? We keep the work fun as much as possible. It's it, it it's real work and it matters and it's hard, but we have such an incredibly vibrant network of bright, brilliant young people. So I guess that that's what it really comes down to is the people. The people with whom I work are so inspiring, and they give us so they give me such hope for the future. You know, I I, I uh, oftentimes uh, refer to myself as a misanthropic optimist. Um, you know, I, I worry that that um, we aren't going to move any of these questions fast enough. I know that we're not. But when I look at, at the young people with whom we're working, when I look at young people like you guys, I you know, having the sense that that a better world is coming um, gets gets me out of bed in the morning every day. Well, if it's not us, who? Right. 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 I mean, in this room and people watching, like if it's not us, who's going to do it? And if it's not now, when? The neatest thing is uh, watching SSDP and, and the ArcView events and they have uh, cocktail gatherings or things and different organizations and affiliations raise money different ways. Uh, and, and the way that the, the tribe comes around Betty and, and her alumni show up over the past years, uh, it's continued to, to change, right? Because... There's a lot of organizations, a lot of political action committees or groups that are dedicated to driving forward policy on cannabis reform. But there's a fine line there, right? Uh, this country gets ostracized or, or criticized for being called a bot Congress. Um, and, and the private sector does play a lot of influence in, in, in capitalism. So there's a lot of groups, not saying any of them are negative by any means, that are driving a lot of advocacy and support that's directly tied to revenue initiatives between certain states and certain countries. There's no revenue initiative for ending the war on drugs um, that's very intrinsic or able to have an arm's reach value to whoever's going to donate. Uh, it's, it's, it's a longer journey, like, like you said, Betty. So as you start to see folks raise their hands uh, and say they'll contribute or donate or participate, um, including some of the most recent programs you guys have put together, uh, it's special because the person that does it is enriching themselves uh, and they can take it back to their organization and say, look, guys, uh, it's almost like a charity, right? Uh, when I grew up, when you gave for charity, it wasn't, don't tell anybody you did it. It's not about it. 
right? It's don't, don't, don't wave the flag. Don't point the candle at you. Point the candle at the cause. And, and I think that your organization provides a very special and otherwise not available opportunity to do real meaningful work uh, with your time and potentially your wallet. Listen, we're a long-term investment. There's yeah. no doubt about it. We're, whether it's whether you're attached to us because of our work around the opioid crisis or our work for psychedelic therapeutics or our work on criminal justice or our work on cannabis policy or our leadership pipeline or the idea that we have to build a movement of people who are educating each other about this issue, no matter what, that's a long-term project and it is absolutely a philanthropic project, but it's uh, it's work worth doing and, and it is... It has, we have proven out over the last 20 years that it is an effective model for creating great leaders who are going to go on and do amazing things and contribute to all of these reforms that we're celebrating here this week in Vegas. So Pablo, it brings me, it brings me back to, um, I had a chance to meet a a great visionary, um, of our time in my previous life, uh, Jason Silva. Um, and he introduced me to a French think tank, um, the imaginary foundation, and this this foundation looks like a t-shirt company, um, and, but it secretly raises absorbent amounts of funds to do a lot of very unique things internationally. And we'll just leave it there. But one of the shirt campaigns that they launched that's gone viral and sold out is um, the tagline "Legalize Consciousness," yeah. and that's really what this war on drugs ultimately does. Um, you know, it's interesting to see alcohol uh, having such deteriorative effects on your body. Uh, but letting that be legal. And it's also an interesting thing when we talk around social control. Um, I have a hard, let's just, let's just role play this here. You have a hard job. Uh, you work nine to five every day. Um, you, you're kind of oppressed by your boss. You, you think you deserve more. You come home, you have six to seven drinks. You go to sleep kind of numb. You wake up hungover uh, and you go to work. Uh, and you don't ask why because you're kind of behind the eight ball. Um, conversely, you go home, you, you, you vaporize, you take an edible, you smoke a joint, uh, you play with your kids, you relax for your family, you don't take in those additional calories, you don't necessarily get numb, you get introspective, and you start asking questions on why you're spending your time the way you are. So the next morning when that oppressive figure at the workplace comes to you, 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 don't, you don't have those chains on, uh, and it gives you an opportunity to see the forest through the trees. And I think that cannabis is is a very interesting vehicle for that uh, because it's not a psychoactive, right? The endocannabinoid system allows your synapses to fire in different sequences, um, but some plant-based medicines provide psychotherapeutic benefits um, that I know I've had personal revelations and insights from, um, and I think that the school of thought, as you would say, Pablo, our, our, our uh, social sciences teacher that said that your actual historical representations were wrong, Right. And whose book yeah. is the question. So so I think it's really special because as these wall as the wall begins to fall in the war of drugs um, and people begin to embrace their willingness to openly say, I appreciate cannabis, not only for the medical relief on my back, but the thoughts and perspectives I have about myself and my life situation is going to become incredibly empowering. When did that actually start? Um, you know, I guess bringing in funds or. Uh, being in this in both spaces at the same time. Sure. So um, we were founded in 1998 around ending um, the Higher Education Act aid elimination penalty, which um, so that is the official name for it. But many uh, listeners will be familiar with the idea that if you have a drug conviction, it is harder to receive funding to go to college. Right. 
we needed to fix that. So we we largely fixed that, although there are still untold thousands of young people who are either discouraged from or unable to receive funding every year. Um, uh, but we were able to to heavily influence that uh, that particular piece of policy and create a lot of reforms in 2006. However, in 1998, um, many listeners will remember, uh, we really had the breakout year for cannabis policy reform where medical initiatives were passed in um, you know, six or seven states. It was it was really one of the biggest years um, of early cannabis policy reform. And from the beginning, we've been working on that. Um, you know, essentially the cannabis industry became a thing um, in 2009. And at that point, you know, SSDPers were already working there. SSDPers were already participating. And the earliest... Um, the earliest of the operators in these spaces were already connected to SSDP and uh, supporting our work. We're already, um, you know, hiring out of our leadership pipeline or and or monthly donors and and whatnot. So places like Harborside um, in uh, in Oakland and Berkeley, California, places like the Ohm of Medicine in Ann Arbor, folks like James Sladek out of San Diego, these people, um, Andre Special, again, out of Berkeley, these people have been giving since long before I was with SSDP. Um, and of course, you know, Troy Dayton and Chris Crane and Amanda Ryman, the alumni um, who are uh, involved in the industry. So I, since the beginning of the industry, we have been woven into the fabric. What kind of funding are you looking for? Uh, or, you know, would, would you, would you prefer, I guess, um, and, and how can people help this, uh, movement? We do work with, uh, you know, f- uh, large scale philanthropists who provide grants or, you know, um, tens of thousands of dollars in support every year. And that like, you know, big picture, uh, you know, um, large scale funding mechanism. Um, that is a, a thing that is of course very important to our work, just like any other, but we're a 501 C three nonprofit organization. And we take, you know, so just like any other, we are, um, accepting tax deductible donations. And so we do work with foundations. We do work with, um, corporate entities and, and other individual donors at that very high level. But most of our support is coming from people giving small amounts monthly. You know, maybe it's $5, maybe it's $25, maybe what's personally significant to a person is a hundred dollars a month. Most of our donations are coming in in that form. Um, and so we receive a great deal of support. And we've got lots of different projects out there that folks can fund. I mentioned that we have a presence in 34 countries. We have global fellows who are working out of Lagos, Nigeria, Mexico City, Mexico, Vienna, Austria. And um, uh, our international program manager is currently working on his master's degree in human rights in Budapest. And so all of those folks need that support. And people can actually give directly to the international fund um, in that same format, you know, a couple bucks a month, uh, you know, maybe $100 here and there, whatever it might be. So people can choose which program they're interested in and provide some support to those individual programs. Or they can say, wow, SSTP, I love that mission. I love the work that they're doing. This sounds like really interesting stuff. I'm going to come to conference. We, we have an annual global conference where we bring in students from about 15 countries. Um, and we could bring in many, many more if our international program were fully funded, you know, that sort of thing where um, where we're providing the education and the training and the networking and the, the, the weaving of that web in between our activists that will support them throughout their lifetimes. We've you know, we have SSTP babies now for crying yeah. out loud. <laughs> That's super interesting because like cannabis is, is global. Yeah, of course. 
right? Of course. So I mean, I I, I I guess it's a it's a great it's a great time, right, to start weaving in those countries that are coming online. Yes, absolutely. With with this organization. I mean, the conversation wouldn't be happening in Ireland right now if it weren't for SSDP. We started that conversation there. In West Africa, the conversation would not be happening if it weren't for SSDP. In Mexico, uh, so we have chapters in uh, Ghana and Kenya um, and Nigeria. And so we have, and, and you know, additionally, chapters in um, Mexico in 14 out of, in 14 of, no, sorry, 17 Mexican states. I know. Um, and those folks are heavily involved in the work there. They've been working on this, on the litigation strategy with the Supreme Court. They've been working on all of these questions. And now we're going to see legal cannabis in Mexico um, and likely the implementation of a regulated market in the next handful of years. And, you know, that's going to be an incredible thing to see. I it's what an I, I literally have goosebumps right now. <laughs> it's because what an extraordinary moment when Mexico chooses to undo the harms of the of the cannabis portion of the war on drugs and perhaps even some others there are some very progressive policies that are being looked at and considered very seriously in mexico central and south america um where these governments are going to be taking back the power to uh, manage these substances in their own spaces without this undue influence from the united states um and the ways that we've prosecuted the war on drugs without the undue influence from the United Nations, which again is driven by the United States. The country's Supreme Court ruled that its prohibition is unconstitutional. While the ruling has not legalized marijuana in Mexico, the country's top judicial authority ruled that individuals who consume the drug cannot be prosecuted. Betty was on the UN floor last year, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, we we have uh, what's called uh, eco soak status. Yeah, dancing on the U at the UN, you know. Now um, we have um, uh, consultative status at the United Nations, which is a common th thing through the Economic and Social Council. Um, and this is how nonprofits, NGOs, uh, are able to provide input to the UN. And so we do uh, frequently have presence there as well at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in Vienna. We go to meetings in New York all the time. This is a thing that we do very regularly. There, there is one um, young, this this kid, I, for, oh my gosh, forget his name, but he has really long hair. I think he's Native American and he's been in the media spotlight for quite a while. At least I've been following him for, for a while now. Do you know, do you know who I'm speaking of, about? He's, oh he's really young. He's a, he's a really young, um, he, he's an activist for, um, I think, like environmental activism. Okay. Um, really long hair. He spoke at the UN. I mean, he left everyone. Well, I don't know if, you know, some of the, some of the people there are probably like not off, you know, cause they have so many things going on. Um, but his, his speech was so, so powerful. Um, do you guys have young, um, you know, um, students that, uh, have spoken at, at the UN? Oh yeah. I almost never go personally to the UN. Um, it's almost always our student members. And in fact, our global fellow in Vienna is the treasurer of the organization that um, connects uh, civil society NGOs to the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, right? So she's the one who's showing up every day. Um, we've got uh, students in New York who are are showing up every day. I, I do very little of this work directly. It's not about about what I'm doing, right? It, it is very much about making sure that students have a platform from which they can do the work themselves. So 
you know, we, we draft documents for submission to the United Nations. I review them to make sure that, you know, it says everything that we want it to say, but I'm almost never involved in the drafting itself. It's almost always coming directly from the youth who are doing the work. So what do you think is, uh, what do you have in plan, in mind, I guess, for the next year? You know, uh, yeah. the things can change so rapidly. So I'm not going to ask for a three or five year plan. But, you know, what, what are you looking for 2019 when it's coming up? So in the United States, we are looking at um, probably six or 10 states, uh, which are likely to uh, take up uh, either, mostly adult use, uh, but perhaps also medical cannabis in a handful of places. Um, we should see adult use pass through several state legislatures. We're going to be working on implementation of these bills that have passed. We're working on particularly equity and expungement programs around cannabis. So, you know, in Colorado, we are part of a coalition that just drafted recommendations. So we'll be doing a lot of work around cannabis in the U.S. for the next uh, year, two years. Have you spoken at conferences? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I'm a frequent speaker, a moderator. I keynote things all the time. Have you ever had a boot your own booth or things uh-huh. like presence there? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, of course. We don't at this particular conference, but we do. We we show up to a lot of different conferences, um, both in the cannabis space and in, in other drug policy reform spaces. So uh, Matt uh, and, and I, through Vanguard Scientific, mm-hmm. we're creating a, I mean, I'm going to call it a circus, uh, a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, luxurious a uh, very impactful circus uh, to go on the road uh, for conferences all over the world. Cool. And and we're going to have different modules um, that make up our Vanguard ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be awesome to invite, I'm just putting it out there without getting any uh, signature here. Um, you know, would you ever be interested in, in being a part, right, of of, of an ecosystem like Vanguard and, and have kind of, uh, you know, I, I guess the story of how we've been able to work together, um, you know, and, and, and kind of share that message with also our customers and our partners and people that interact with Vanguard. Oh, right? Because w- when yeah. people, when other businesses and other entities, whoever might be interact with Vanguard, it would be awesome if they're, that also means that they're interacting with you. Absolutely. I think that one of the really interesting opportunities with the cannabis industry is to make sure that we are spreading this message of reform as broadly as possible and using those platforms that you all are developing. I mean, listen, your marketing budget is a hell of a lot bigger than mine is. And so if we can find ways to, uh, you know, inject our message and our information into the work that you're doing, we're always happy to do it. And I love giving cannabis uh, companies the opportunity to um, you know, broadcast to the world that they are supporting this incredibly critical work that we're doing, that they recognize that, you know, right now, while Vanguard is doing this innovative work around, um, you know, a- a- around strengthening the cannabis industry, there are still 650,000 people getting arrested every year. There are still people sitting in cages. And you all understand that that is a a dissonance that cannot continue. You all are committed to that. I want to help you broadcast that message as much as possible. Pablo, we had a chance to see um, during the ArcView conference that just happened a few days ago, uh, a new company that came out, um, recruiting an executive talent staffing company, uh, H2 Talent. And um, just the great folks behind behind that organization. But one of the coolest things was there was an open dedication and pledge of 2% of their gross revenue right. to students for sensible drug policy. Yeah. Not profit, 
Um, and that's going to be a meaningful number as this business is going to experience rapid growth. But the more that companies like H2 and Canon Advisors behind them or Vanguard Scientific or others can, can really show that importance in their corporate charters, I believe the customers, the employees, and the folks that interact them in that v- vendor ecosystem are really going to start to get it, right? Um, so we're not extending uh, dispensary hours. Um, we're not lobbying for volatile or non-volatile extraction. This is a much bigger message, and it's a much harder goal to accomplish. But just like a long race, right? Uh, it's better than running one lap around the track and feeling like you've accomplished something. You know, after several miles and the exhaustion and the struggle, boy, will success uh, taste sweet, right? And what's that message, Matt? Save the world, Pablo. There you go. And throw you a softball there. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, it's a heavy softball though, right? Because it's, it's not like anyone can just, can just uh, throw that out there and, and wish it upon a star. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a mission, Right. And, you know, if, um, and I think, um, the, when, when, when the stars align and the planet systems are, are moving in, in sync, um, and we can align our own transmitters and our own endocannabinoid systems, um, along with other humans, I think there's a lot of power, a lot of fuel, um, to be directed in the right mission, in the right path. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I'm super excited about, you know, today, right now, um, and, and, you know, that's going to lead into other, uh, next step action things that, that we can definitely do together. But, um, please, you know, where can people reach you at besides, uh, you know, going directly to your website mm-hmm. and also if, um, you know, maybe if, if, if people are here in Vegas, uh, we do have like over 80 countries that listen to, to our podcast. So it was really cool to hear that, you know, you have international charters. So wh- how, how can people get in contact with you and also uh, with, with their, um, the organization? Our website is ssdp.org. So, uh, and you're, you can just Google students for sensible drug policy. I can remember that. Yeah, yeah. that's an easy one. It's pretty easy. Um, and there, folks can uh, learn about our uh, our membership programs uh, to support us through philanthropic work. Whether again, you know, whether that's something that you're interested in doing at a grand scale or a grand scale for you, what's most important is a personally significant gift, right? Um, and for many of our our members, that's five dollars a month, and we're delighted to have it. It really, you know, five dollars a month means another pack of of materials that we can send out to students to educate them about. Um, what to do in the case of an emergency. You know, that's not, that's not nothing. Um, they, people can learn about how to get involved in our policy actions. They can head over to uh, our campaigns page. And whether or not you're a student, we have campaigns up that you can get connected to and, and engage in. Um, you know, we also have people who are members of chapters who aren't actively students. So that's a thing that exists. But also students, yes, absolutely get in touch. If you're listening from one of those, uh, let's see, 46 countries where we don't have a presence and you are excited about the work that we're doing, Get on there, go to ssdp.org slash join, and we will get you on the list. We'll get you um, sorted with one of the global fellows or international program managers who are able to um, help direct you. And then, of course, follow us on Instagram because it's awesome. And that's at SSDP Global. On Facebook, we're just at SSDP. Thank you so much for sharing space with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here and have a a, a different kind of conversation than I'm used to having. It was a delight. Thank you. Thanks, guys.